Hi there, and welcome to For Whom the Cell Tolls. I'm your host, Keenan, and today we're going to talk actually about my research in lymphoma and kind of what I've gained this pseudo-expertise on. It's a very narrow area, but um, lymphoma as a whole is actually the seventh most commonly diagnosed cancer, and we'll kind of go into why and why lymphomas are very unique as far as a cancer goes, especially compared to solid tumors that exist as a single mass. Lymphomas, you know, for example, they are all over the place in the body, and that's what makes them a challenge, and in some cases, it actually acts as a weakness. So I actually got this idea from a Reddit thread. Somebody was just like, hey, like, you've never done one on your your own research, and it kind of hit me like a brick. I was like, yeah, that's probably the first thing I should have done, <laughs> but I think I have gotten a few episodes in, like, some little stuff and examples that I've used from B-cells um, into some of the other episodes, but... Today's is actually going to go over what B-cells do and why cancers in them are so bad in, well, in a lot of cases, and you'll see that there's so many different types. So the big thing with B-cells is that they're a part of your adaptive immunity. Adaptive immunity is the immune system. It's a long response, but it's one that becomes very specific to whatever kind of foreign pathogen or foreign invader is coming at you. It's composed of B and T-cells. Now, you'll hear this a couple times, but T-cells are lame. Everybody likes T-cells because they're aggressive and they attack and they kill stuff. B-cells are way better. B-cell, the B stands for best. That's what I think as a B-cell researcher. But that's, you know, that's just the department speaking through me, of course. No bias at all. The big difference is that B-cells produce something called antibodies that are going to go and attack large foreign, um, like, organisms or objects that are invading the body. T-cells attack infected cells, usually cells infected, let's say, with a virus. So that's the big difference, is that B-cells are going to shoot basically weapons out, these antibodies, at these incoming big foreign objects, like big parasites, uh, bacteria, things like that, while T-cells have to actually kill cells that are harmed or infected. So this response in the adaptive immune process, this usually occurs after the innate response can't handle it. Your innate cells are like your natural killer cells, your skin, you know, like mucous membranes, things like that, that are always going to be after, you know, to kill bacteria, virus, anything that looks like those that does not look human, they're going to be killing that. The adaptive defense has to happen after those defenses have either been overwhelmed or evaded somehow. So B and T cells essentially are going to work together in this process, though. We're mainly going to cover just the B cell process. You'll see that there's many, there's tons of different types of T cells, and it's really cool if you ever want to study immunobiology. I'd highly recommend, you know, if you ever want to pick up a textbook, this is something really cool because we are harnessing this across medicines. And, uh, you know, it's definitely something worth to learn. So B and T cells actually come from the same progenitor cell. And what that means is that you have little stem cell populations in your bone marrow, or sorry, your bone marrow for your immune system. And essentially what these stem cells do is they don't proliferate very often. They don't multiply or divide. But when they do, a lot of the times they will divide and the daughter cell will actually have some kind of change if it's stimulated to, to become either a B cell or a T cell. And so they actually come, they're kind of cousins, B and T cells. And that's actually a whole nother interesting conversation about how they've kind of this co-evolution that they've had into, but, you know, they, they have these divergent mechanisms where they're still coordinating the whole time. 
So with B cells, the first thing that happens is after it's come from a progenitor cell, it will kind of go off into one of, it, one of the organs, one of the secondary lymph organs, and kind of sit there. And one of the first things it has to do to survive is make what we call a pre-B cell receptor. So you remember the antibodies, and the, they're these little Y-shaped proteins, and they're actually really large. They're these Y-shaped proteins, and at the tops of the Y are variable regions that that's where, you know, the binding and the proteins right there, that changes depending on each B cell. So the antibody actually starts right at the top of the B cell on the surface of the cell. It's actually not being secreted until much, much later. Actually, the final stage is when you start actually secreting antibodies. The reason for this is that this process has to be very delicately controlled. When you get B cells and sometimes T cells that are out of control or make antibodies to the wrong thing, that's when you get autoimmunity. And we've talked about in other episodes that autoimmune reactions can completely decimate a human body. Completely. It's a very, very powerful thing, the immune system. And a lot of our challenges in the 21st century have been trying to control that. We talked a little on the microbiome, how that relationship is part of that control and we're losing it, but for the purpose of this episode, we'll keep focusing on B cells. So the big thing that happens at one of these stages is that any B cell with a pre-BCR, and I could be getting some of these stages wrong. I don't have a, you know, I don't have it right in front of me right now. This is just what I know or think I know. Um, basically the B cells at this stage, at this like kind of small stage, they're going to have the chance to encounter, um, proteins in the body that are our proteins. We call these self, you know, cause it's our self proteins. If for any re if for any reason that the pre B cell attacks or is stimulated by any of these self proteins, it pops, it blows up and it's completely gone. And this is, this is a great reason for this, is that if it encounters a self-protein and it binds to it because it's pre-BCR, those little variable regions, if it likes to bind to self, that's bad. You don't want that B cell to ever live and ever make any progeny. Because if it does, you'll start secreting antibodies that are going to bind all over your body and cause your immune system to attack you. That would be a terrible thing to do. So one of the first built-in defenses upon B cells becoming B cells is that they go through this education. They essentially transport themselves, sometimes from the bone marrow, to a secondary lymphoid organ. And along that journey, they're going to see the rest of your body, or a ton of it. If they react to anything, they have the trigger to explode, and they go through apoptosis. So we call this, like we said, B-cell education. Essentially, making sure that any B-cell that ever is even going to make it to the first step of development it cannot bind to the human body or any of the antigens, so quote-unquote, that the human body would present. So at the secondary lymph node, this is when um, some of the processes start that make things unique. But first, at this stage, most of the B cells actually have to wait for something to come and get their attention, essentially. So you have these little collections of B cells, most of them have the little surface antibodies. And if they don't, if they can't form the surface antibody, like if their genes are messed up, and we'll see why they might be, they, you know, they undergo apoptosis too. Because that surface antibody, they need that to feed them like growth, proliferation signals, things like that to survive. 
So the big thing at this stage is that they're kind of waiting for a signal. They're waiting for an antigen to come by, or at least a signal that antigen will be arriving soon. The way it gets that is their cousin T-cells. So the first thing that happens when a foreign body, like let's say a parasite comes in and it starts shedding off uh, toxins or waste, or even better yet, like a bacteria comes in, it starts shedding off parts of the bacteria. And what's going to happen is those little pieces of antigen are going to get caught up by macrophages, dendritic cells. Those will be presented on the outside of those cells, and those cells will go and transport this to T helper cells. Or actually, uh, yeah, sometime, well, not just T helper cells, but and T killer cells as well. So they'll present this antigen to the T cells. The T killer cells will see it, and if they match, they can go and find any virally infected cells, things like that. But the big important step here for B cells is that T helper cells will get triggered by the antigen that's incoming. They'll go over and shift towards the lymphoid organs upon this signal, the migrate, and they'll go towards the lymph organs with all the B cells. They'll start secreting cytokines, which we know are the little messengers that the immune system secretes. These cytokines are aggressive cytokines. They're saying, everyone get up, everybody rally up right now, because something's in here, we need to get ready. So all the B cells start rallying up once they feel this cytokine comes. So the T helper cells has essentially triggered them to start growing aggressively, proliferating, multiplying, because it's going to start getting a little competitive with all the B cells and all the other B cell cousins. So remember that each of these little pre-B cells, they have a different variable region at their little antibodies on their surface. The tips of the Y are different, and that's because they have to be able to bind to different things. So one cell is going to produce one kind of antibody. But that means a billion cells all running around in your lymphoid organs. It's probably not a billion, actually. I don't know. Um, there's a lot of combinations in there. That's a lot of competition for who's the best binding cell. Because ultimately, what you want to produce is a B cell at the very end of this process that has an antibody that is perfectly going to bind to the antigen that is triggering this attack. And, you know, this is kind of the ultimate process of vaccines, is vaccines actually introduce a non, you know, a non-living antigen, and this whole process will be happening. So, in this case, a, long, a, a few stages of development happen, and a book will do this better justice because you can look at a picture, but I can get started right here. So you have these rallied B cells, and they're basically angry, and they're starting to grow and divide. They're also being pseudo-exposed to the actual antigen, because these antigen-presenting cells have now come to these B cells with the actual antigen now. This is a key part because in this big mass of riled up B cells, some of them are going to be able to bind to that antigen. Those that do, when they hit that binding signal and they make contact with that antigen, they're going to get all kinds of growth and survival and like basically happy signals. The reason for this is that you want an antibody that's going to bind to an antigen. If you have a B cell that, you know, its antibody doesn't bind, it's not going to get any signal and it's going to go away. And that's fine. You don't want a weak antibody to make it against circulation because you're only going to end up with a few of these. So what happens is this massive competition against all these little B-cell clones, what we call them, but they're not clones. Each one is different. The ones that can bind well to that antigen, they start multiplying and proliferating. They start literally pushing 
their competition away. They fight and they push it out. Sometimes you get several clones that are very good binders, but it's only the very best one that is going to make it out of what we call this big, you know, this big mass. We call that the germinal center. So the best example I have for this is that there's a species of sand shark that when pregnant, a lot of the eggs inside the female shark will hatch at once. A lot of these little sharks are completely free in the womb to swim around and they start attacking each other and killing one another. Really violent, like super, super crazy mechanism of evolution to find the absolute meanest, strongest shark, and that's the one that's going to get born. I think in the actual example, two of them actually always survive. But it's out of like 20 or something, maybe even more, I think, that are fighting in this womb all against each other, all cousins, or sorry, in this case, all siblings in this case. You can even say the B cells that are fighting in our germinal center, they're siblings as well almost, because their only big differences are the variable regions on their antibody. So that's the ecology you know, kind of the interdisciplinary connection I always make when I'm explaining what a germinal center is. It is this just pit fight for the best binding antibody. And only the best B cells are going to survive. Now, it's not just random chance that is going to allow, you know, just the one best B cell to be there. B cells employ two things that never occur anywhere else in the body because they're, compl- they're really dangerous processes. So to make that variable region better, B cells do two things. And not just for the variable region, but the whole antibody. They do two big things. One is called somatic hypermutation. There is literally a mechanism that goes into the DNA, the, very, the, you know, the, the genome of a cell, and it makes mutations in the variable region of the DNA of these antibodies. So the DNA gets changed. The RNA then is thus changed. And thus the protein at the variable region is all of a sudden changed. That means that with this mechanism always going in these B cells, you're always going to be having new changes emerge at the variable region. It's going to make a lot of them better binders. It's going to kill a lot of the cells too, though. It's a huge sacrifice. So this is only usually happening in B cells that are already doing pretty well binding, and they're making lots of copies of themselves through cell division. But then if you start to introduce change and variation and new mutations, you might get a new B cell that can bind even better than its first one. And then that new, better mutated cousin or sibling or whatever, progeny, it'll outcompete everything that it's related to. And now it's the best binding B cell. That's a lot. That's, that's a lot of Bs. Best binding B cell. Um, second mechanism. And remember, this is really dangerous genomically. You're messing with DNA. You don't usually do that because most cells would incur so much damage. But remember, we have tons of these B cells and you got to find the very best one. The second thing is called class switch recombination. In this case, entire gene segments are cut and pasted in front of one another. These are the gene segments that are required to make the big stock of the antibody. So the big like the stem of the Y that you're looking at. So those can change. And depending on their shape, they can change their binding. So if you have a wider one, if you have a smaller one, that changes everything. And it changes the positioning of your variable region. And it can make you a better binder. But again, a terribly dangerous process that occurs nowhere else in the body. You're cutting and then pasting back in at a different spot to make it active. An entire gene in place of another gene 
You can imagine that when this happens, the B cell loses its BCR, the little surface antibody, and it pops, it goes away, becomes apoptosis. And again, super dangerous. You're introducing all kinds of chaos. But our bodies do this all the time. And eventually through these processes, through a massive competition, a single clone or a single, basically a single version of a B cell emerges that gets so many, so much contact with the antigen that it completely shoves out all the other B cells and it's the winner. And then you enter the final stage of development when there's only one left, when you're the last shark left in this womb, you become what we call plasma cell. And that's, you know, what we visually see as B cells. Plasma cells, instead of just having the antibody on their surface, they start secreting them. They can secrete thousands a second and they flood your bloodstream. The antibodies go and attack. Not only do they block up these organisms that are invading you, but they then target them to be attacked because the, the end of the Y, so on the bottom of the line, that's actually called a functional region and it attracts other immune cells to keep attacking. It engages those natural killer cells, things like that and you have this massive attack. If you look at a GIF or GIF of parasites and worms that come under attack by the immune system, it's, it's really amazing. Because remember, to these cells, these giant hemoliths, these giant parasites are like Godzilla-sized. Yet, when you can start secreting thousands of antibodies that are going to bind up right up to it, that can rally the entire immune system to come and just converge and burn out these parasites. It's amazing to watch. Try and Google that because I, I do have that image in my head, but I'll see if I can um, link it in the description maybe. So as you can tell, this is a big, uh, this is a pretty cool process and it's a dangerous process. You might be surprised that it's only the seventh most commonly diagnosed cancer lymphoma that is because of all these processes I just told you about where you're shifting DNA. You're literally mutating DNA. Isn't that the thing we exactly wanted to avoid with cancer? And it is, but it's the price we pay for a very diverse immune system. Without B cells, we'd have a very hard time. We'd be, I mean, our biggest enemy as we evolved was parasites. We had very little defenses against them without targeted B cells. I mean, you know, there's tons of stuff, obviously, but uh, but the targeting of the B cells, that's really the trigger that rallies everything. It's like a, you know, it's like a charge whistle, essentially, once the antibodies can come through. And remember, this takes like three or four days. And that's why the adaptive immune system is characterized as very slow. I mean, you need this time to have this competition to see what B cells best. And sometimes it's too late. So, you know, despite all this, sometimes there's there's not a way. But for the most part... We can deal with a lot of stuff. So this brings us to our true point, lymphomas, B-cell cancers. So I told you a smaller version of this developmental chain. In this chain, there are many, many events. There are many stages. There are stages that the B-cell recycles back to, for example. There's a cycle in that germinal center back and forth. Antigen, no antigen. Antigen, no antigen. And in between, they grow. There's all kinds of stages. Right now, according to the WHO, there are roughly 60 types of lymphomas. I'd say about 10 to 15% of those are actually natural killer cell and T-cell lymphomas, because those are also classified as lymphomas. 
And then here's the big one. Okay. Hodgkin's lymphoma is one of these 60 diseases. It does not constitute its entire disease. It's ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. So whenever you hear non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, just remember that's all lymphomas. Hodgkin cells are very weird. They're their own kind of thing. So good for the guy for naming them, but he really messed us all up by doing it. Non-Hodgkin's lymphomas. That's where everything is coming from. So this big developmental chain with B cells, each stage corresponds to a different one of those, you know, 40 or so subtypes of lymphoma. Some are really rare. Some are really common. The one I study is very common. You know, some of these cancers, they start at that pre-B cell before it's ever seen antigen. And those are mistakes that happen at that stage. Some of these uh, rare type of the cancer is that sometimes these pre-B cells, they can, they avoid the germinal center, but they start producing antibodies anyway. Kind of an everything fits all antibody. Those are called marginal zones. They can have their own type of lymphoma. They're an interesting kind because they can actually be triggered to become cancer by accident, like by an overinfection, because the infection will cause them to overproliferate a little bit, and actually curing the infection cures them. So they're a little unique. So you can see that at each stage and at each like geographical point along this development, there's an opportunity for a cancer. So one of the more aggressive ones, too, is called multiple myeloma. That's at that plasma cell. That's at the very end stage. And, uh, you know, those have to almost be treated as their own disease because then you've lost a lot of the mechanisms that make you a B cell. You're kind of this graduated B cell. You've kind of lost all your checks and balances that you had before even. So one of the biggest issues is that we get stuck in that germinal center. So remember the big competition, the big soup where all the B cells are fighting. A lot of the times you just lose control. And that's not too hard to imagine since you have mutations and genes shifting around, you know, nowhere else do you have that. And sadly, one of the other simple things is that sometimes a gene will just turn on during that cycle and it just will not allow a cell that should die to die. And it just keeps cycling and cycling and cycling forever. It just gets stuck. It can't die. It just keeps going in a circle, but it's not going to graduate either. So it kind of is just sitting there, going and going and going. This doesn't sound too bad, and for a lot of people that this happens to, nothing ever happens. But the problem with a cell that won't die is that it lasts. It's also in this environment that its DNA is changing. And if you last too long, you encourage the chance for more issues to happen. And that's how a lot of these cancers happen. A big issue with how we approach these cancers is that it's very hard for us to find out what were the driving mutations, what was the original mutation, because the tumor that we see is very different than the very first cell that got the very first alteration or boost of some kind, because we'd never really see that, because it's usually a harmless, tiny population of cells that we call these progenitor cells. They may have one, two genetic mistakes that are driving them, but never enough to be an actual tumor. So targeting them is very difficult because they look so much and behave so much like our normal cells. And we can't just send a therapy after them that would kill our normal cells too. That would be poison, essentially. That's all that would be. So a big challenge for us is finding these progenitors and getting rid of them while also treating the active tumor. So, and, and the other thing, the big thing, 
with each of these, you know, 60 developmental stages that you get these tumors at, the surrounding environment, as we've talked about, T-cells, B-cells, everything, it's going to be different in all of them. And it's going to be hard to control in every one of them. So it's definitely a challenge. Um, and, I mean, I read an article just today that hemological malignancies, they usually account for most of the hospital deaths, um, you know, kind of in a percentage-wise way of looking at it because when you're treating a patient for an immune cell cancer, you're going to kill the immune cells that are healthy a lot of the times. A lot of your B cells are going to go down when you're treating a B cell tumor. And the big issue in hospitals is that without immunity, you really lose your real only line of defense in an environment that is full, full of infection and things your body's never seen from people in corners of the world you've never met. And that's not their fault. They're not doing anything to hurt you, but hospitals are simply hotbeds for a diverse attack of pathogen on a human body. And some people are better able to handle that. But when you're treating the immune cells with cancer therapy and you're killing them, you're losing that step that you would normally have. So another big thing with lymphomas is that, and it's an interesting thing, is that some are very aggressive. They're going to proliferate and divide and survive, and they're going to get aggressively big tumors and lesions that can pop out, and you can see them on images and seminars and stuff, and it's just bad, you know, big bulky tumors everywhere. The other types are called indolent, and they're non-aggressive, and they're strange. One of these is called a follicular lymphoma, and it's incurable. Now that sounds scarier than being non-aggressive, but they're the same thing, and they go in time, they go in tune with each other. It's an incurable disease as of right now, but it also doesn't grow aggressively unless, sometimes, unless you treat it. Because if you treat it, you might actually accidentally select for the most resistant, highly aggressive tumor cell, and then all of a sudden you have a new tumor that you have to deal with. So a ton of the time, you actually just wait and watch on these tumors, the indolent ones. It's best if you just wait. And sometimes people wait their whole lives. And you may have this tumor, but, and it may be a visible tumor on a scan, but you can't treat it because if you do, you may trigger an environment where a real bad tumor might come up that will come from those, those cells just with a new environment, a fresh environment with plenty of resources that it can dominate now that you've cleared out its competition. So it's a very kind of a tenuous relationship with these, these indolent tumors. The aggressive tumors, which is one that I study, they're easy. They're just a straight cancer. We got to attack it now. So, and the other big caveat, and I know I've mentioned this before on some of the podcasts, why hemological malignancies are very difficult, but also have some advantages in treatment, is that they are all over your body. These cells are traveling. They're stuck everywhere. There's no surgery in hemalignancies for the most part. I'm, I'm sure there are some operations that can help sometimes, but these cells are traveling all over the place. It's kind of a pre-packaged metastasis. It's just the nature of the disease. They're everywhere. Now, this sounds terrible, and the lack of surgery, it's not helpful. Solid tumors, sometimes you can go and cut them out, and that's good. The thing is, though, is that this has forced us as scientists and clinicians to think bigger and think systemic, think about how to treat the entire system while saving the patient, but only targeting a tumor. And this is why you see all these crazy therapies always being tested on the battleground of hematological malignancy. 
is that you have the perfect setup for it. You have to do this. There's no surgery option. You need to find a therapy that is going to target tumors based on their genetics throughout an entire system and not kill your patient. And it's a huge challenge, but this is what produces some of these small molecules that target genes that only exist in the tumor or CAR T cells that are bred and engineered in a lab to hunt tumor cells and go around and get them. Some of these therapies don't work very well in solid cancers, at least not yet. And that's why, you know, hemological oncology and malignancies, they've been a very, they've been kind of this testing ground for a lot of stuff. The reverse is true with solid tumors. Sometimes we borrow treatments from the solid tumor people and they end up working. I, um, I'm trying to think of any good ones right now. I mean, for the most part, I mean, the other thing about heme cancers is that, some, I mean, a lot of chemos really work. People get cured from a lot of these and that's, that's not something you can say with a ton of solid tumors. And again, that's kind of the nature of how we address it systemically. We have, you know, we have to apply therapies that are going to get the entire thing completely rooted out. So let's take a look. Yeah, so they vary widely. I know I don't want to miss anything, so I have to look at some notes here. I know even though I study it, it's pretty bad, right? Don't hire me as a scientist. Battleground, unlock keys. And yeah, so the last part about the battleground that I wanted to mention is that when we do want to someday somehow address metastasis when a solid tumor starts to spread out and have little colonies all over the body, those prototype therapies will have to, I, I would guess, start in the hemological malignancy arena because that, that's the warfare you're fighting. It's not a linear European warfare like chess where you have you versus the enemy. It's asymmetric warfare. The enemy has surrounded you. You must surround the enemy. You can't fight a linear warfare against an asymmetric enemy. They'll surround you and pick you apart. That's why our therapies have to be a little more creative and strange. And you can look back at the little therapy episode I did. A lot of those are for heme malignancies because we don't have a choice. We can't cut it out. So the disease that I study, it's the most common lymphoma. It's something called diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Good for everybody. There are two types of this lymphoma. One, the first type is called germinal center. These are the germinal center cells that are cycling and cycling. They're all competing, right? So they're pretty aggressive. They're pretty bad. The more aggressive subtype of DLBCL is called activated B cell, ABC. These have graduated one step beyond the germinal center, and they are very, very aggressive. They survive. They proliferate they do not respond to the standard therapy very well. And we were able to designate these, or at least the scientists at Stanford were, by taking a look and seeing that there were two populations, and a third one if you want to debate the unclassified population, based on RNA profiles. So what genes are active in this subtype and what genes are active in this subtype? And we found that they were very distinct. There are some people that are kind of debating whether the RNA is where the story lies or where the DNA is where the story lies. But hopefully with things and the advent of all these sequencing technologies becoming so cheap, we'll be able to integrate them so well, eventually we can really personalize how we treat every single patient. So most patients, you know, I'd say about 50% of DOBCL patients that I study get cured with a combination chemotherapy called CHOP and an antibody that kills B cells called rituximab. I know an antibody that kills B cells is actually pretty strange, but we engineered it and it causes our immune system to attack our malignant immune system 
and it has great effects. It's actually used in some immune suppression stuff now for autoimmunity. And so it's always a good another crossover. But how a lot of my cancer case, or a lot of how my DLBCL cases start, you know, it's always up for debate. But to put up some good examples for those two aggressive processes, remember the genetic changing processes? They happen in my disease. So class witch recombination, this is where you're cutting and pasting genes. That machinery can make mistakes. And usually if it makes a mistake, the cell dies. But if it makes the mistake of taking a oncogene that makes survival happen, like BCL2, we've talked about that, putting BCL2 up against a gene like the heavy chain, which is a big immune cell gene, the heavy chain is always on. It is on and making copies all the time. If your combination switch, or sorry, yeah, combination switch recombination, or class switch recombination, sorry, if that puts an aggressive proto-oncogene, so it's not an oncogene yet, BCL2, and you put it next to a really high driver, you're going to have tons of BCL2. Your cell's going to start surviving, and nothing's going to kill it. It's not going to die when it's supposed to. It's just going to sit there cycling and cycling and cycling. This is what we talked about, where patients sometimes, sometimes people have their DNA sequence, and they find, oh my god, you have a BCL2 translocation, but they don't have cancer. Because remember, that's just a progenitor. You need a few more steps to go. And sometimes you never have those steps, and that's great. And, you know, more power to you. So that's a mechanism for the less aggressive germinal center B, like DLBCL. It's a big mouthful, sorry. The aggressive one sometimes comes from the other mechanism, somatic hypermutation. So the somatic hypermutation mechanism is targeted to kind of certain sequences of DNA that are enriched in the variable region of those antibodies, because that's a real region you want to change, right? Sometimes, though, this machinery gets confused, and it will hit a spot in the genome that looks like the variable region, but it's not. And for the most part, if you hit something important, the cell's going to die. Problem is, is that you're making small changes and we found with sequencing that a lot of tumors share the same exact, like, founding mutation. Sometimes in this gene called MyD88. If you get this mutation, you accidentally trigger the gene to stay on permanently, and it can never get shut down. This gene causes something called NF-kappa-B to start a complete cascade to, say, grow and survive and make more of this cell. Usually these programs are good when for B cells, because remember, we have to trigger B cells that are good binders to the pathogen to grow more and make more copies of themselves. When you accidentally mutate an off switch of a, you know, a, a growth gene, the ABCDLBCL is sometimes the result. So it's the consequences of a system that creates antibodies for, you know, to attack billions, unimaginable amounts of combination of pathogen. You have to be ready for any kind of variation. The amount of variable antibodies, you know, with regions, with variable region changes, class switch recombinations, so different kinds of antibodies, different kinds of binding, is anywhere between 10 to the 12th, which is a trillion combinations, and 10 to the 30th, which is zounds of, of combinations just beyond counting combinations more more so much more than a, than a mole even the mole the chemical um unit that is like 10 to the uh what is it 
times 10 to the 23rd power, just a massive, unimaginable number. That's how much possibility exists because of these DNA editing mechanisms to change the type of antibody you have, because eventually you're going to need an antibody against something your body's never seen. But, you know, like we said, this whole, this whole episode, it comes with a huge price. And that's what, you know, that's what makes lymphomas worth studying, I think. It's this incredibly weird, aggressive environment, you know? It kind of reminds me sometimes with all this change and, like, kind of this violence and this competition, kind of like what a primordial Earth would have been like. Just, like, small creatures running around hitting each other, attacking each other, you know? Bursts of environmental, like, lava, things like that, lightning hitting everything, just an apocalypse, basically pretty much any time the T-cell shows up and says, okay, let's go, let's make more antibodies. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that the more times you get sick, the better chance of a cancer you're going to have. Most of the events, most of these events are not targeted. They just, when they happen, they happen, and they're in a very, you know, aggressive genetic editing area, and nowhere else in your body are your genes messed with, but they are here. And, you know, it's, it's a very cool thing. It's not something I look forward to ever having, um, but like we've said in some of these other episodes, there's always a lot of hope, and it's better to be at a forefront of a, with a disease like this where there's all kinds of emerging experimental things that are targeted to specific genetic mutations, specific pathways, because we are getting there. And in a perfect world, eventually what we'll have is kind of a hierarchy of therapies where you start with standard therapy, but if your genetics say, go to this therapy, you start with that one instead. Hopefully that's the best one for you. And if not, move on to the secondary therapy. Genetically validate again to see if your tumor's changed. Move on to another therapy if it does. And hopefully we live in a world eventually where we can keep going. So I'll leave you with that. I know that was a massive episode. Um, sorry. It's a lot of content in there. And I know that I missed stuff. Trust me. Like, it's my area of study and all that, but I definitely like, it's nice to have a pay like a picture in front of me. I probably should have had one this time, but if I did mess up, feel free to let me know and take a look at the immunobiology. Just if you ever want to Google B cell development process, great pictures come up um, and they'll kind of show you hopefully what I showed you of how the little pre B cell goes in, goes into the cycle, competes, the best one emerges produces antibodies and I left out the very best part the very like the end of B cells so we have the plasma cells that are spitting out the antibodies they can also become memory B cells and those are the whole idea of immune memory there are memory T cells and NK cells supposedly but the B cells are the the immunization they're what vaccines make essentially is they make the antigen process happen and then you end with plasma cells that produce a bunch of antibodies but you also end up with memory cells. And these memory B cells can become plasma cells the minute that antigen comes back. And they kind of just sit around quietly. They don't divide. They don't eat anything. They just hang out and they wait. And they're really good for us. I mean, otherwise we'd have to re-up this entire three to four day process every time. So yeah, get your shots. Um, it's all I can tell you. I'm a B cell biologist. I'm not, yeah, we don't have to get into that. Just, yeah. <laughs> Anyway, have a good night, and thank you for listening. As always, let me know if there's anything else you want to clarify. This is, again, a big episode, but I'm always happy to talk B-cell biology and, um, you know, kind of what the future is there in lymphomas. So thanks again, and have a great night. Bye.